Hello and welcome to the Physician Assistant Exam Review Podcast. This is Season 2, Episode 18. Today we are covering pericarditis, endocarditis, and uh, effusion and tamponade. My name is Brian Wallace. I'm the host and creator here at Physician Assistant Exam Review uh, Podcast and the website, uh, physicianassistantexamreview.com, where you can find all the notes, everything that we cover here in the show. Uh, you can find a more visual format over at the website. If you go there and you just click on the, I think the blueprint link in the upper right corner on the menu bar, will take you to a whole list of everything that we've published or on the bottom right corner is the most recent episodes. So you can click right to those. Uh, I want to start off today by just saying congratulations to a few people. Uh, who have recently passed their exams or are doing outstanding things. Uh, Brezia just passed her exam. Uh, she's a single mom and has been struggling, so congratulations to you. Uh, Teresa, congratulations on getting through your exam. Where did it go? Ah, Michael, there we are. Uh, great work. Congratulations to you. And Becky, who hasn't quite passed her pants yet, but has passed nine of 12 clinical rotations. So uh, great job. Uh, you're almost there, really. It'll go so much quicker than you think. Uh, again, this week we're going to be covering pericarditis, endocarditis, and, uh, effusions, and tamponade. I do have uh, quite a bit to get through. There's a lot of things you can ask test questions on here. Uh, so it's it's a lot of information that, like I said, is easy for you to get questioned on. It's not particularly hard material, but it's things that you should know because it, it just it lends itself to easy, easy test writing questions. Uh, so let's jump into those and let's get started. Diffuse ST changes on an ECG. What should be the first thing that comes into your mind? Diffuse ST changes on an ECG. Remember, even if you don't know, I want you to take some time and think this through. Think about it. These are priming questions. They help get you ready to listen, ready to pay attention. It helps when the information actually comes through in a few minutes. It sticks a little bit better. So think. Diffuse ST wave changes on an ECG. Pericarditis. Which are the tender findings, Osler nodes or Janeway lesions? Osler nodes or Janeway lesions? Osler nodes are tender. We'll get to the, all that in a little bit, and I'll explain a heck of a lot more about what these are and how that works. What are the two? What are the two major Duke criteria for diagnosing endocarditis? What are the two major Duke criteria for diagnosing endocarditis? Remember, there are major and minor criteria, and we'll go through all that again. Uh, positive blood cultures and a positive echo findings. Decreased heart sounds and a narrow pulse pressure are indicators of what cardiac issue? Decreased heart sounds and a narrow pulse pressure are indicators of what cardiac issue? This is one of those that should jump off the page if you get it on your exam. A pericardial effusion. All right, so now that we've uh, <laughs> covered that, let's go in and actually go through the material so you can answer those questions and understand uh, why, why they are so important and you can understand how easy they are to get right. We're going to start with endocarditis. Endocarditis is an infection of the cardiac tissue, right? So pretty straightforward. The most common pathogens here are strep viridins, staph aureus, and enterococci. Risk factors, and this is important, risk factors are prior endocarditis, 
damage to the heart tissue or to the valves. So things like mitral regurgitation, aortic stenosis. Um, if you have congenital heart defects that have been corrected or not corrected, all of these things, any damage to the heart can set you up for endocarditis. Prosthetic valves are another good one. Um, the post-op replacement period, that post-op uh, first two months is where the most common infections occur on a prosthetic valve. And then the organisms change a little bit here. It's going to be Staph aureus all, still, but also fungi and gram-negative bacteria. And then another, the other risk factors are any event which may introduce bacteria into the circulatory system, right? So if you get uh, 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 bugs that shouldn't be there, organisms that shouldn't be there in your circulatory system, so if you you then obviously you increase your risk of some of them settling into the heart. So the number one thing that you see on test questions, and I, I, maybe I'm wrong, I couldn't find a whole lot of data to back this up, but it's certainly something you come across on test questions is IV drug use. And here you're going to get your most common bug is going to be Staph aureus due to needle contamination. So IV drug use is a way to introduce bacteria into the bloodstream and is a risk factor for endocarditis. So same thing with dirty uh, surgical procedures. So things like dental work, upper respiratory procedures like tonsillectomies or adenectomies, GI procedures or urinary procedures, all of those can potentially introduce bacteria into the circulatory system. So central line placement is another one. Um, all of those are things that have the potential to introduce bacteria, which then may seed the heart. So all of those are setups for endocarditis. Doesn't I mean you're going to get them, but it's on a list of things. So when you get a test question, there should be something along the lines of a couple of risk factors for a patient who's going to have endocarditis, right? So they should have, um, you know, a history of a cardiac history as a kid and then be an IV drug user. And then that's going to directly point you towards a an answer of endocarditis. You know, something along those lines. A clinical presentation. Here, you can have a lot of nonspecific signs of infection like fever, chills, fatigue, loss of ap appetite, uh, multiarthralgias, so pain in, in your joints all over the place. A physical exam finding is going to be a new or changed heart murmur. So the patient had a murmur, but now it's different, or they have a new murmur. That's certainly an indicator for endocarditis. Um, this is a little bit confusing, this next part. Hang on one second. There we go. I just want to fix something in my notes so it's more I can make it more clear. Um, you, you have two, two different things that can happen that have similar results. They are embolic events and immunologic events. An embolic event or rather an embolus, is an unattached mass that travels through the bloodstream. Okay, so no matter what it is, a mass of something that's traveling through the bloodstream that's not attached to a sidewall is called an embolus, right? And when that gets stuck somewhere downstream, usually it, it's at a larger point. So if you think about in the heart, an embolus is formed. Well, the vessels are really big, right? So as you get further and further out, let's say into the fingertips and into the capillaries, the vessels get smaller and smaller and branch down and down and down. So that embolus that wasn't a problem in the heart becomes a problem when it gets lodged downstream. Okay, so an embolic event is an embolus causing a problem downstream. So in endocarditis, a couple of those that are obvious triggers and obvious things that, you can, that you'll see and hear in test questions are splinter hemorrhages, which are small black lines in the nail bed. So you get these little, um, it's almost like bruising but they're little black lines where an, a little teeny embolus has caused a, uh, an issue with the blood vessel there, and you get these 
splinter hemorrhages. Janeway lesions are another one. These are non-tender macular lesions, most commonly involving the palms and the soles. Again, one uh, obvious test question is just to separate Janeway lesions and Osler nodes. We'll get to the Osler nodes in just a second. But these are non-tender macular lesions, commonly involving the palms and the soles. Again, these are an embolic issue. Uh, petechiae, which are one to two millimeter, per, millimeter purple spots on the skin. Same thing. So this are a little teeny embolus gets into the, the skin blood vessels and creates these petechiae. And then one I hadn't thought of until I was, I was going through this section was signs of neurologic deficit. You can get little teeny, uh, these little teeny emboli into the brain as well. So you can get some signs of neurologic deficit depending on how advanced and how, how much of an issue is going on. The other thing that's similar, but the test will separate out, are called immunologic events. An immunologic event is, well, uh, let me explain it this way. It's when an immune complex does the same thing as an embolus. And an immune complex is an antigen plus an antibody, creates an immune complex. So when you have an antigen in the body and the antibodies attack it, right? And they form all over it and they cover it and it winds and they stick to it. This creates an immune complex and that has the same ability to travel downstream and cause a vasculitis or a blockage of a blood vessel as would an embolus. A little bit different and your test will may want you to differentiate them. It's not complicated, it's not hard, but they are a little bit different. So an antigen plus an anti antibody makes an immune complex which can travel downstream and cause vasculitis or a blockage of a blood vessel. So examples of things that are caused by an immunologic event as opposed to an embolic event would be Osler nodes. These are painful, palpable urethaminous lesions, most often on the pads of the fingers and the toes as opposed to the palms and the soles. Osler nodes are painful and they're the result of an immunologic event. Now, there's some debate over that. They've actually found um, bacteria in these nodes, and when they've been dissected, there's some debate as to what they actually are. But for our purposes, don't worry about that debate. Just understand that they're part of the immunological complex rather than just a straight embolus. And Osler nodes are painful. One of the ways you can remember that is uh, Osler starts with O, and some people say ouch when they get uh, when things hurt. So O for Osler nodes, O for ouch. Um, that's one that's helped me. I don't use a ton of mnemonics, but that's certainly one that's helped me because Osler nodes and Janeway lesions just seem like a like low-hanging fruit as far as knowing the difference. Roth spots are another one. These are pretty rare, but these are retinal hemorrhages with white centers, Roth spots. And then you can also, these patients may also have glomerulonephritis from the kidney trying to clear all of these immune complexes. We haven't, you'll have to go back to season one to get the discussion on glomerulonephritis. I am certainly not going through that uh, here, but understand that those immune complexes build up in the kidney and can cause some issues there. So the same reason as we move into labs, you're going to get a BUN creatinine on, uh, you're going to look at it. If there's a spike in the BUN and creatinine, then you're going to be even more concerned and understand where that comes from. Okay, so you're also going to start off with three blood cultures at least one hour apart from each other. Uh, you're going to, for a diagnosis, you're going to need a blood cultures two at least 12 hours apart or three, I think it's three out of four, we'll get to in just a second. I think three out of four um, that are one hour apart to be positive in order for that to meet the criteria. You're going to get a CBC, a C-reactive protein, sed rate, BMP, uh, all of the gen, uh, standard labs. Your ECG is going to be pretty normal in endocarditis, and but what is going to give you some information is going to be an echo or a transesophageal echo. Um, these may show the effective heart valve or some vegetation there. They're going to show, uh, hopefully, if the patient has endocarditis, these are going to show some changes for you.
And here's where we get into the interesting part. The part that, well, not interesting, but the part that's easy to ask test questions on and is convoluted and painful for uh, students and practitioners alike if they're not in this section. Diagnosis. The Duke criteria, which is established in 1994 and revised in 2000, has been used to diagnose endocarditis. The Duke criteria requires one of the following be met for the diagnosis to be made clinically. I'm going to go through this slowly because it's painful. Uh, it's not hard. Again, this is easy stuff. But the way it's often presented, it makes it seem a little convoluted. Uh, if you go over to the website, I've actually put together a flow chart. If you go over there to the, to the page for uh, season two, episode 18, you'll be able to find that flow chart there. Uh, it's pretty, that should help you understand and be able to visualize this whole thing a little bit better. But the diagnosis to be made clinically has to be either two major criteria have to be met. We'll go through what the major criteria are. We'll go through what the minor criteria are. Don't worry about this yet. They either have to meet two of the major criteria or one of the one major criteria with three minor criteria or five minor criteria. And this makes sense when you think about how the diagnosis is made. It's hard to memorize, but I think this is one of those that makes a lot of sense when you stop and think about it. Let me run through all of them and then we'll go back through and I'll explain each of them more clearly. But I think the big picture will help as we go. So a major criteria include positive blood cultures and positive echo findings. Okay, we talked about those already. Those are your, your mainstays of diagnosing endocarditis. So someone comes in, you think they've got endocarditis, you're going to get blood cultures and you're going to get an echo. Okay, those are your first two big things. Those are going to be your diagnostic things. Now, the patient's also going to come in with some other issues that are going to point toward endocarditis, that are going to make you think maybe they have endocarditis, but they're not going to give you as clear a diagnosis as an echo or a blood culture. So those are your minor criteria. Your minor criteria are going to be predisposing factors. So the risk factors we talked about earlier, I'll run through them again. Just I want to cover all this. A fever, an embolic event, an immunological event, or a positive blood culture that doesn't meet the criteria for positive blood culture. I'll get to that in just a second. But we've got our major criteria, which are our big two, positive blood cultures, positive echoes. Then we've got our minor criteria, which are the other supporting evidence. In order to diagnose this, you need two major criteria. If, you, if they've got positive blood cultures, positive echoes, then you're done. The other option is to have one major criteria. So your blood culture is positive, but you don't see anything on the echo. Then you drop down to your minor criteria. And if you have three of those, then, you're also, then you've got a diagnosis. If your blood cultures are negative and your echo is negative, you need five of the minor criteria to meet the justifi uh, justification for endocarditis. All right, we're going to go through this again, and I'm going to explain each one of these as we go, uh, and hopefully it'll sink in. Again, that flowchart's over on the webpage, uh, www.physicianassistantexamreview.com, and if you go to Season 2, Episode 18, uh, you can grab that. So for a positive blood culture, it, it can't just be that you find bacteria. It must show organisms consistent with endocarditis. These include strep viridin, strep bovis, staph aureus, enterococci, or the, the HASIC group. Now, the HASIC group is a little bit weird. Uh, this is a group of gram-negative bacteria which rarely cause endocarditis and are often normally found in the oropharyngeal region of most humans. They initially thought this group was going to be super important for endocarditis. Turned out it was much less important. I think, I think the numbers I came across were 1% to 3% of endocarditis is caused by these, um, but initially they were also put in this, into this group because they thought they were going to be uh, important for this diagnosis. Uh, those include, I'm going to butcher some of these names, uh, Haemophilus, egg. Regidobacter, Cardiobacterium, Echinella, and Kingella. Uh, that's our HASIC group. 
they'll come up a few times, but this is one of the more important places where they pop up. Um, so positive blood cultures have to have one of these bugs in them. So strep viridin, strep bovis, staph aureus, enterococci, or one of the Hasek group. You must have two positive cultures at least 12 hours apart or three positive cultures drawn at least one hour apart. Okay, so that's what we talked about. You draw three of these one hour apart. If they're all positive, then you've got one major criteria met. You've got this one checkbox hit. Or if you draw two cultures 12 hours apart and they're both positive for one of these bugs, you've got your positive blood culture checkbox hit. Your other major criteria is going to be positive echo findings. This is a little more clear to understand. So a new regurgitation, a new abscess, oscillating masses in the heart, anything that's weird that shouldn't be there uh, that points to endocarditis is a positive finding. So those are our two major criteria, right? So if we have both of those hit, you've got endocarditis. It's only if you don't have both of those that you're going to drop down to your minor criteria. So again, predisposing factors is our one of our minor criteria, which is any cardiac lesions. So we talked about previous heart damage, uh, prosthetic valve would fall under that. Um, congenital heart issue that was corrected as a child would fall under that. Anything, any insult to the heart um, would be a predisposing factor. Any procedure which may introduce bacteria into the bloodstream. So again, your uh, oropharyngeal surgery, IV drug user is the one that just uh, that pops into my head every time that I think of test questions. If you, I don't know if I got that one a whole bunch or what, but that's like one that's easy, easy to, to, to pick out. IV drug user comes in with fever and, you know, new murmur or something. Um, anyway, so anything that's going to introduce bacteria to the bloodstream. And then again, in the notes here, I separated out IV drug use because I just feel like that's something, it's just a way the test questions seem to fall. Uh, another minor criteria would be a fever greater than 38 degrees Celsius or 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit. And, and one of those embolic events we talked about, so splinter hemorrhages, Janeway lesions, petechiae are signs of neurologic deficit. An immunological event, so those are separated out in your minor criteria. An embolic event would be one. An immunological event would be another one. So ossular nodes, Roth spots, and glomerulonephritis would be an immunologic event. So if a patient has Janeway lesions and ossular nodes, you would hit two of your minor criteria. If they also had a fever, you'd have three. And then lastly, a positive blood culture not satisfying the major criteria. So that seems weird at first because you're like, well, what do you mean a positive blood culture doesn't satisfy major criteria? But we just went through what satisfying the major criteria was, right? So you had to have one of those organisms and it had to be two positive cultures 12 hours apart or three positive cultures drawn at least one hour apart. So positive blood cultures that don't meet that criteria would be a different bug or one positive blood culture, right? So that would be a minor criteria. You would hit the minor criteria. So you would start with your major criteria. You'd check your positive blood cultures. You'd check your positive echo findings. If both of those are positive, then you've got a diagnosis of endocarditis. If none of those are positive, but you're like, man, this guy really looks like he's got endocarditis. Well, the question is, why does he look like it? Well, he's got predisposing factors. He's got a fever. He's got embolic events. He's got, he's got Janeway lesions. He's got Roth spots. He's got glomerulonephritis, And he's got one positive blood culture. Well, if you hit five of those, you can make your diagnosis. But you've got to be sure. You've got to have five. Now, if one of your major criteria is hit, so let's say you have the blood cultures have been negative or you haven't drawn them yet, you haven't had a chance to draw all three, but your echo is positive, then you only need three minor criteria to back up that major criteria. So if they have positive echo findings and they've got a history of heart valve replacement, and you see Janeway lesions, and you see uh, Osler nodes, 
then you've got your diagnosis. You only need three to back up one major criteria. And that trips people up a lot because it seems complicated and weird. Uh, again, check out the flowchart on the webpage. It should hopefully make things a little bit easier for you. Understand that this is not as complicated as you think if you think about it from the perspective of the person in the emergency room or in the office trying to make this diagnosis. You're going you're gonna to look at the patient. You're gonna, it, the things that make you think endocarditis are going to be your supporting information, and then your diagnosis is going to come from your blood cultures and your echo. Now, how do we treat this? <laughs> let's, let's say that we've di finally diagnosed it. Um, basically two ways we treat everything, which is medical and surgical. Um, first of all, we start with pro prophylactics. So prophylactic antibiotics used for patients with predisposing cardiac issues undergoing higher risk surgical procedures. So here we have our oral amoxicillin, uh, one gram, one hour before the procedure. Pretty straightforward stuff. Uh, most of you know that or are dealing with that in some way, shape, or form. In an acute setting, empiric antibiotics are started after the first positive blood culture. Four to six weeks of IV antibiotics Four to six, it, these take, uh, um, endocarditis is, is difficult to treat. It's four to six weeks of IV antibiotic treatment. And that empiric treatment and where we begin is with vancomycin and ceftriaxone until the cultures and susceptibilities come back. Our surgical treatment is going to be, if, if there's a valve that's infected, that valve's got to get replaced. Bacteria love to live on anything prosthetic that doesn't get blood flow into it. So anytime you have a, uh, let's say you have an orthopedic patient who's got plates and screws in, if they get infected, uh, that stuff's all got to come out and get cleaned out. Debridement of abscess or infected material is another surgical procedure in order to clear this out. If you see an abscess, you probably you may have to go in and, and actually clean it out. Okay, so that's endocarditis. Uh, pericarditis is the inflammation of the pericardium. The pericardium is a double-layer membrane that contains the heart. So think of the pericardium as a sac that holds the heart in it. The causes of pericarditis are... Um, the most common is going to be viral infections, the echovirus, Coxsackie virus, the flu, HIV, and mumps. Bacterial infection is rare and typically follow, follows a respiratory infection. This can be a pneumococcus or TB is the one that comes up a lot when you talk about this. Another way uh, pericarditis can start is uh, after a myocardial infarction, which is Dressler syndrome. We'll talk about that later. Uh, post-cardiac surgery, radiation, it can be autoimmune-mediated, uh, kidney failure can cause some pericarditis, and trauma. Clinical presentation and exam findings, I sort of mixed this together because it's um, it, was, it was hard to separate, so I put them together. Uh, sharp pleuritic chest pain. This is pain is affected by the key here, so they have this sharp pain. It's not, and one of the keys as, I, as I'm going through this is to separate out pericarditis from a heart attack. Right, so when people say, "Oh, I have trouble with," I can narrow it down to one of two options, uh, but then I struggle to tell the difference between the, these two. One of those that you'll get questioned on is pericarditis versus an MI. Right, so sharp pleuritic chest pain is different from crushing chest pain. Like an elephant sitting on my chest is more heart attack, uh, angina. Sharp pain is more pericarditis. The other huge key here is that the pain is affected by position. It's positionally uh, moderated. So aggravated by deep breathing or lying down, alleviated by leaning forward or standing up. So a patient who is leaning forward feels a little bit better. A patient who's lying back feels a little bit worse with pleuritic chest pain. That won't affect an MI. Um, the other one I came across was with, a, with angina or myocardial infarction. Activity may make that pain worse. 
well, with, with pericarditis, activity is not really going to make that worse. So you want to be able to separate these things in your head, separate them on test questions. What are they going to ask you? What information are they going to put into the test question that's going to help you pull those apart? Well, that's just it right there. Because the rest of these, dyspnea, diaphoresis, fever, um, you know, those could all go with an MI. Uh, the dry cough, maybe not. Um, but it, the, the, you have to look for those little keys that are going to separate out each diagnosis for you. What are the, what's the thing you're going to hold on to when it comes to pericarditis if you have to diagnose it on a test question? Well, here it's going to be sharp pleuritic chest pain with uh, affected by position. These patients may also ex appear extremely ill, and you may hear a pericardial friction rub on the lower left sternal border. Labs and studies, a CBC with elevated white blood cells. Remember, this is an infection. Well, not necessarily an infection, but a uh, inflammation. Uh, it could be an infection. BUN and creatinine may be elevated. Again, uh, kidney failure can cause this. ECG, here we have our diffuse STT wave, uh, STT elevations. Again, here you're thinking heart attack. This is where they're going to try and trip you up because ST elevations, you think, am I, right? Except they're everywhere. And as you go through the EKG, they shouldn't be in every single lead, right? It shouldn't, <laughs> if it's everywhere, then it's pericarditis. It's not a heart attack. Uh, on an ECG, if you do your 12 lead, it should be anterior, posterior. I am, right now, I'm, I don't look at e <laughs> ECG, so I don't remember all the different uh, ways of presenting that. Uh, hopefully, I'll, I'll get to that soon. But if it's everywhere, you should be thinking pericarditis. Um, here, the, the next list is a bunch of uh, studies that aren't necessarily going to give you specific findings for pericarditis, but they're things you're going to do and things that are going to help to rule out other issues at the same time. So an echo isn't really going to show you anything for pericarditis, but it is going to rule out uh, endocarditis or help you with uh, MIs and certain other things. Uh, CT or MRI, same thing. Cardiac enzymes will help you rule out your MI. Um, you may get a tap of, per of the pericardial effusion to see what's causing this. And a pericardial biopsy, that seems uh, pretty extreme, but uh, possibility. That will certainly tell you what's going on. Treatments. Treat the underlying cause. So if it's a bacterial infection, you're going to give the patient antibiotics, antifungals. Uh, if it's a fungal infection, perhaps dialysis if they're having kidney issues, uh, and so on. So like we talked about, just treat the underlying causes first. Aspirin and high-dose NSAIDs to reduce inflammation. Corticosteroids can be used if the NSAIDs are not affected, but they increase the risk of recurrence. So you kind of want to hold off, and hopefully the NSAIDs will work. Colchicine is another option, which may be effective. Like we said earlier, diuretics, uh, if your patient... Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, dialysis may also be necessary, but diuretics is another one. Pericardiocentesis. Um, if the effusion and if, if there's an effusion and tamponade occurred, so pericardiocentesis is actually going in and tapping that fluid. Uh, and then a pericardiotomy, which is going in and opening a window in the pericardium to let the fluid out. <clears throat> Our last topic for today is a pericardial effusion and tamponade, which leads directly from pericarditis. Pericardial effusion is an increase in fluid within the pericardium. Cardiac tamponade is when the pressure from the pericardial effusion constricts the heart to a point where it begins to affect cardiac output. So remember, pericardial effusion is when that sac around the heart starts to fill up with fluid, whether it's blood, whether it's pus, whatever it is, it's filling up with fluid. That's a pericardial effusion. That's most commonly caused by pericarditis, which is an inflammation of the pericardia, uh, pericardial tissue. I'm sorry, of the, of the heart tissue. Cardiac tamponade is when the pressure from a pericardial effusion constricts the heart to the point where it begins to affect cardiac output. So if you think about the heart sitting in a bag, in a plastic bag, like a Ziploc bag, 
and you start to put fluid into that bag and the heart's beating inside the bag and the fluid's filling up and filling up and filling up. Well, at some point, the pressure in that bag pushes against the heart. Tamponade is when eventually it pushes so hard that the heart has trouble beating against that pressure and cardiac output falls. That's cardiac tamponade. Obviously, that's a major concern, emergency issue. Uh, Effusions are bad. Tamponade is emergent, right? That's our our huge issue. And our most common cause of pericardial effusions is pericarditis, followed by congestive heart failure, failure, myxedema, and trauma. So again, anything that fills up that sack uh, puts you in in, in a bad place. And if you head over to Wikipedia and pull up, there's a a picture. If you pull up pericardial effusion or hemopericardium, there's a great picture there of, um, if you're having a little trouble understanding or picturing this in your head, there's an awesome picture there. Go check that out. I strongly recommend it. I've stopped linking to a lot of things because all the links break as I move forward. uh, And it (laughs) seems to cause me more headaches than it is helpful. But if you you go check that out or if you just start looking up some images, um, you may find something that that helps you to understand what this actually looks like how you should think about it. Our clinical symptoms here, our clinical presentation, uh, these are similar to pericarditis, so our, our uh, shortness of breath, uh, dry cough, looking very sick, all of those things, and you know the fever and everything else that goes along with pericarditis because usually that's our cause. Although again, something like a trauma, the heart would fill up with blood, uh, the pericardial sac would fill up with blood, uh, not exactly the same symptoms, but you need to, to parse that out a little bit. Physical exam findings, hypotension. Why are we going to get hypotension? Well, if you have... If the heart can't push out blood and you get drop in cardiac output, you're going to get hypotension. Jugular venous distension, same thing. If the venous pressure is building, is back building, just like in CHF we talked about, the blood the the blood can't get back into the heart. Well, then it builds up in the in the other tissues. So you get jugular venous distension. You get tachycardia because if we're having low output, your heart is trying to make up for that by beating really really rapidly. Tachypnea, paradoxical pulse pressure. Put a big star next to this one. Paradoxical pulse pressure, a drop of more than 10 millimeters of mercury in systolic blood pressure during inspiration. We're changing the pressure inside the chest cavity when you breathe in, right? So as you breathe in, you're increasing the the pressure in the chest cavity, which is going to increase the pressure on the heart, which normally wouldn't matter that much, except when you already have this gradient, this huge pressure around the heart, it matters even more. So paradoxical pulse pressure is a drop of more than 10 millimeters of mercury in systolic blood pressure during inspiration. Something on the similar line, narrow pulse pressures. Narrow pulse pressure. So the, the difference in the pressure between the diastolic pulse and the systolic pr- pulse. If that's closer together than normal, that's bad. And if you think about what we're talking about, if you've got the heart being squeezed and it can't contract as hard, the difference between systolic and diastolic is going to be closer and closer. So normally, a normal blood pressure is what? 120 over 80, right? So a normal, uh, the normal, normal distance between the pulse pressures is 40, right? 120 minus 80 equals 40 is 40. Well, when you start to get blood pressures of 100 over 90 or 100 over 100, right? We have narrow pulse pressures. This is, tells us that the heart's constricted and can't beat over that certain pressure because the outside is pushing on it to that point. So that would be in our tamponade, narrow pulse pressures. So to me, again, and then the last one here uh, is another one you should hang on to is decreased heart sounds. Why are you going to get decreased heart sounds when you listen with, with your, uh, 
when you listen to the heart, well, if you've got a sack of fluid surrounding the heart, the noise it makes is going to be different than you're used to hearing, right? It's going to be harder to get through. So decreased heart sounds is on our list here. So to me, again, we talk about how can I parse this out? How can I remember the difference between pericarditis and the difference between uh, effusion and tamponade and, and, and on test questions, how are they going to write these? That's how I want you to be thinking about them when you're studying them. Well, if you have someone with paradoxical pulse pressures or narrow pulse pressures and decreased heart sounds and all these symptoms, it becomes very obvious that they've got a tamponade going on, right? If you hear narrow pulse pressures, you should be thinking tamponade. If you hear paradoxical pulse, if you hear decreased heart sounds, that should all click for you, effusion and tamponade. Those should be key words that just trigger that thought in your head and make it very, very easy to make these connections and jump and move along. These should be things you should be hopeful you get on a test. On a test, Labs and studies. Uh, a chest x-ray may show a water bottle heart. ECG is going to be nonspecific T-wave changes with lower QRS voltages. Again, why the lower voltages? Well, if we're surrounded, we have the heart surrounded, sack surrounded by water. Uh, I'm sorry, in a, in a bag of water, it's going to drop those voltages a little bit. Electrical alternons is pathognomonic. Here's another one. Write this down, star it. The QRS amplitudes fluctuate beat to beat. So one time it goes up, the next time it goes down. That's weird. Shouldn't do that. Electrical alternons is pathognomonic for uh, effusion for tamponade. Echo is going to be diagnostic. It'll show those issues. Uh, and a pericardiocentesis for culture and cytology. Treatment. Small, stable effusions may be watched carefully. So if you have a little infusion, uh, effusion, so you, peri, the peri, you have a patient who has pericarditis and they have a little bit of fluid around the heart. Well, it's not a big deal, right? A small, stable effusion may be watched carefully. If it gets worse, and you can monitor this with something like an echo, if this gets worse and they start to show symptoms, that's different. But a small, stable effusion may be watched. Again, you're going to treat the underlying causes. Pericardiocentesis may be required. You may have to get that fluid off, and then a pericardiectomy uh, may also be necessary. We want to avoid all of that if possible, but that's on our list. Ooh, okay. So that brings us to the end of pericarditis, endocarditis, effusion, and tamponade. Let's jump into and talk a little bit about our study tip for today before we wrap up with our final questions. My study tip for today is going to be. Uh, um, Something a little bit different, something that occurred to me recently is people have trouble reading the test questions. They struggle with how long it takes, the intensity of it. Uh, one thing I think you can do to dramatically improve this, and not if you're taking your test next month, that's not going to help, but if you're a student and you're in your first year or second year, one, one, one thing I'm going to recommend is you read more. Spend more time reading. Spend more time with words. And I know you're going to say, ah, oh, I don't have time for that. One of the things I do uh, every night before bed is I read for about 15, 20 minutes. It helps settle me down. It helps clear out my head. It's usually some, whatever, it's usually terrible. The worse the book is, the, the better it is to help put me to sleep. Uh, and so I look for things that I'm not necessarily as interested in as I might be. Um, unfortunately, right now, I'm up later than I should be reading. But I try to read every night for at least 15, 20 minutes before I fall asleep. It helps clear out my head. It helps clear out my brain. But what it also does is help you get used to reading. And I didn't, it just occurred to me as I was trying to help someone through a problem. We read in these short little bits when you're in school, right? You read your notes, you read your your textbooks, but you don't read for understanding in the same way. I I think if you spend more time reading, spend more time with novels, when you get to your test, it becomes much easier to spend that long. You have to spend four hours reading. Well, most of you aren't used to spending an hour reading. 
Most people don't read for that long. I think an easy way to help you develop your reading skills more is to read more. People say, oh, I get tripped up because I don't see the words accept or not or this or that. You don't practice enough. Practice more. And the easiest way to practice is to grab a novel. It's fun. It's easy. I'm actually really excited. Neil Gaiman's uh, new book uh, just came out today. Uh, Norse Mythology, I think it's called. He's, he's great. I love his work. Um, I would strongly recommend the Graveyard book or anything else he's done. Uh, Neverworld is great. Um, anyway, if you're looking for a place to start. But I, I strongly recommend that you spend more time reading. And again, this is not a strategy that's going to help you if your test is next month or in two months or in three months. But if it's two years away, I think it'll be a huge help in general, but on your test specifically, to spend more time reading. I just finished a book um, called Mindset by Carol Dweck. I'm going to talk about that next week. And absolutely amazing stuff. Um, it just talks a lot about how we learn our attitudes toward learning and how we can improve. Um, I'm going to bring you some information from that book as best as I can, uh, hopefully next week if I have time in the show. But anyway, let's finish up with our uh, post questions. Explain narrow pulse pressures in your own words. Explain narrow pulse pressures in your own words. Yes, right now, out loud, we're going to wait. Go for it. If you're in the car, whatever. Explain narrow pulse pressures in your own words. Out loud. You have to actually form the ideas. This is the difference between the pressure from systolic and diastolic. Is your pulse, pr your, your, it, it, I'm sorry, the difference between pressure from systolic to diastolic, it's normally 40, I uh, think 120 over 80, and it becomes closer and closer. That becomes a narrow pulse pressure. Pulse pressure is the difference between diastolic and systolic pressures. Narrow pulse pressure is pretty much anything less than 40. Why do we hesitate to use steroids in pericarditis? Why do we hesitate to use steroids in pericarditis? They increase the recurrence rates. Sharp chest pain, which is worse when lying down, is an indicator of what issue? Sharp chest pain, which is worse when lying down, is an indicator of what issue? Pericarditis. All right, great work. Uh, this was a little bit longer. Thanks for sticking through with me. Um, like I said, this is just filled with things that are easy to ask test questions on. Make sure you know this stuff. Head over to the website. Check out the flow chart I put together. And um, thank you so much for sticking with me. And uh, I look forward. And congratulations to those of you who said we passed your test this week. Good luck to those of you taking your exams uh, in this coming week. And I look forward to talking to you next time. Take care.